Hello, Channel Pros. Welcome back to the Channel Journeys podcast. I'm Rob Spee, your cycling, sailing, and partner ecosystem fanatic and your host of Channel Journeys. Welcome to the last episode of 2023. Christmas is only five days away, and to celebrate, I've got a Christmas special podcast for you. Based on my podcast stats and comments I receive, many of you seem to enjoy hearing about my sailing adventures. This past October, I went back out on the water with my sailing buddies, and today I'm going to tell you all about our catamaran sailing adventure. Before we head out to the Caribbean, I want to give a shout out to Impartner, the sponsor of Channel Journeys. You know, building a partner ecosystem requires a really powerful partner management solution. With a global user base of over 4 million partners, Impartner is recognized as a global leading provider of partner management technologies. Their platform is built around best practices and sophisticated automation that enables partner teams like yours to quickly move from program operations to maximum time to value. Impartner also hosts an annual event each year. It's called ImpartnerCon. I attended this year's event earlier in the year in Salt Lake City. I learned a ton from it. Next year for ImpartnerCon 24, the theme is Multiply. This is a must-attend B2B conference for partner and channel leaders alike. It's taking place in Miami from February 5th through the 7th at the JW Marriott Marquis. I'm going to be there on stage with my CRO, along with many other amazing speakers. The lineup includes Jay McBain, Diane Krakora, Asher Matthew, Janet Shines, and even Tiffany Bova is going to be there. It's kind of like a who's who from the channel. I cannot wait, and I hope to see you there too. Okay, are you ready for some Caribbean catamaran sailing? Settle in with your hot chocolate and Christmas cookies, and let's go. is the thing to say on a bright Hawaiian Christmas day. That's the island greeting that we send to you from the land where palm trees sway. Here we know that Christmas will be green and bright. The sun will shine by day and all the As far back as I can remember, I've been dreaming of sailing a particular set of islands in the Caribbean. I've been reading about them in all the sailing magazines, but I guess I was a bit put off by the distance to get there. The Virgin Islands are so close by and easy. I was also a bit intimidated by the sailing, knowing the winds tend to be stronger and the islands are further apart. But after many ocean crossings and my trip last year sailing around the U.S. and Virgin Islands, I knew I was ready. So where is this sailing paradise that's captured my imagination for so many years? It's called the Grenadines, a chain of small islands stretching over 60 miles from St. Vincent to Grenada. They technically sit in two island nations. One is called St. Vincent and the Grenadines to the north, and the other is Grenada in the south. The only Caribbean islands south of Grenada are Trinidad and Tobago, sitting just north of Venezuela. For this trip, I'm bringing back my same band of sailing brothers that I told you about in last Christmas's catamaran sailing adventure. After that sail, Ed, Ben, and Barron were immediately ready to sign up for another round. This adventure starts at 3 a.m. Saturday morning when my alarm startles me out of bed. By 4 o'clock, we are on our way to the airport for a 6 a.m. flight to Miami. There we meet up with Ed, who flew down the day before from Tennessee, and we all board our 10 a.m. flight to Grenada 
Kind of amazed that all the flights are actually on time, and after a year of planning, we are on our way. The flight to Grenada is only three and a half hours long from Miami, and by 2 p.m., we're stepping off the plane on the Spice Island of the Caribbean. I actually read that Grenada has more spices per square mile than any other place on the planet. Pretty cool. It's known for its cinnamon, turmeric, ginger, cocoa, and my favorite, nutmeg. We make our way through immigration and customs, collect our luggage, including Ed's two very important fishing poles, and catch an island taxi minivan to the hotel, the Radisson Grenada Beach. It sits right on Grand Anse Beach, the most beautiful beach on the island, just next to the main harbor town of St. George's. The tropical heat and humidity is hitting us pretty hard, making us all feel pretty lazy. So we take a refreshing dip in the bay, followed by a walk down the beach to this coconut beach bar we find for our first round of rum painkillers, topped, of course, with the island's fresh nutmeg. Then we find some food trucks down the street selling delicious local meals. Ed and I go for curried rice, shrimp, and lamby, which is the local name for conch. It is really fantastic. We planned our trip to land on Saturday and have some time to relax and look around. Sunday, we check out of the hotel and check onto our boat in the Port Louis Marina in St. George's. Then we could do all our provisioning at the Foodland grocery store just across the street. Well, in sailing as in life, you always need to be prepared to tack. Our first tack was learning that the island pretty much shuts down on Sundays. Fortunately, there was one grocery store open that day, a nice IGA, but it was several miles from the marina. So we took a taxi out there, filled up two grocery carts with all our food, drinks, and lots of drinking water. You don't really want to drink the water coming out of the boat's holding tank, so we buy enough to have about a gallon per person per day. We load up another minivan taxi and make our way back to the marina. There, Ed and I, we start the check-in process with Dream Yacht Charters, while Ben and Baron have the fun job of loading all of our luggage and all of our provisions onto Elway, our beautiful 42-foot Fountain Peugeot catamaran that will be home for the week. Ed and I have the advantage of sitting in an air-conditioned office for the check-in. We're told some complicated rules about checking out of the country of Grenada and into the nation of St. Vincent and the Grenadines, hoping that we can figure it all out later. Ben and Baron are drenched in sweat after getting everything loaded in the hot sun, but with all that done, Hero, the Dream Yacht base manager, walks us through the boat checklist and operational items. This is the time when you really want to listen. Every boat is a bit different, and you need to make sure you know the peculiarities of, of your boat. One of the most important items we learn is that you have to hold your knees on the wheel when going in reverse. If not, the prop wash can swing the rudder so hard that you can shear off the rudder bolts, and yeah, that would be bad. Hero also says we need to run the engine for three hours every day to charge the batteries. He shows us how to operate the water maker and advises us when to reef the main before coming out of the lee of the island. That's because then you'll be exposed to the full wind blowing across the Atlantic. That's the same wind that once had me intimidated from even visiting these islands. By 4 p.m. we're ready to depart, but we only have two hours to sail. Dream Yacht's charter rule is no sailing after sunset, so we have to be at anchor or on a mooring ball each day by around 6 p.m. There are different ways to approach a sailing charter. Some people go without any plans and just play it by ear. That can be super relaxing, but no, it's not my way. I spend months reading about the islands and map out possible courses for the week. Getting out the maps and cruising guides to plan a sailing adventure is, is really part of the fun for me. I found an awesome iPhone app called Savvy Navi. It's for navigation, but also allows you to plan your routes. It shows you the distance between the islands, gives you information about all the different anchorages. It provides weather forecasts and even recommends routes based on the forecast. I used Savvy Navi to figure out how many hours of sailing we had each day and where would be great places to spend the night. 
For that first night, I'd planned on making a quick stop at Mulnier Bay to snorkel the underwater sculpture garden that I'd read about in National Geographic magazine. It looked really cool. Then we'd go a bit further north and anchor in Halifax Bay for the night. Well, that plan was scuttled when we learned that the sculpture garden is closed for repairs, and if that isn't enough, we also find out that there's a town dump next to Halifax Bay, making it for less than an enjoyable evening if the wind is blowing the wrong way. Well, no problem. We change plans and decide to pick up a mooring in Grand Mal Bay, just to the north of St. George's. That turns into our first adventure. The mooring balls aren't what we expect. Some are tangled in these old grungy lines and others have these weird fishing nets full of fish hanging just below them. The sun is almost set down by the time we finally get ourselves secured to a, a pretty questionable mooring. The next morning, as will be the case every morning, I'm the first one up, and it's my favorite moment of Caribbean sailing, making and enjoying my morning coffee on the deck, looking out over all the other boats and the islands. It's a great time for quiet reflection and journaling. I'm capturing all the details of the trip in my logbook. Soon, though, the others are up enjoying coffee and biscotti with me. There were some items we couldn't find the day before at the IGA, including, including very important eggs for Ben's favorite pancakes. We see a small grocery store from the boat, so Ben and Baron drop the dinghy into the water and work to start the motor. They couldn't get it to start, but eggs were calling, so they rowed all the way there and back. Soon we're enjoying a breakfast of bacon and eggs, then cast off the dodgy mooring ball to begin our journey north. This is going to be one of our longest sails, 21 nautical miles to Tyrol Bay, Curacao. After all the fresh mahi ceviche we enjoyed on our Virgin Islands sailing trip the year before, fishing is a top priority and we had high hopes of many more great catches. Ed had both poles set up with lines in the water by about 9 a.m. I'm at the helm 30 minutes later when I hear the line zinging and, ye and I yell, fish on! Baron is the first to the rod and starts to reel it in. And we can see the fish jumping, and we're pretty sure it's a barracuda, but we'll never know as it departed with the lure and all. We didn't get any more hits fishing as we motor sailed up the east coast. The wind was blowing out of the southwest, which is pretty odd for the Grenadines. Normally you have steady east winds, but a big tropical storm 400 miles to the northwest above St. Martin is sucking up all the wind. Once we get out of the lee of Grenada and hit open water, we thought we'd have more wind, but it actually died altogether. Well, things always change when you're sailing. An hour later, the wind started picking up as we passed Roaned Island. We finally have the joy of shutting off the engines, sailing under a full jib and a reef mainsail. It seems like a good time to put out another fishing lure on my hand line, and almost immediately I get a hit, and Ed has another one in his line. I lose mine, but Ed reels in this beautiful Dorado. Our first fresh-grilled mahi-mahi dinner is in the bag. The wind continues to build along with the seas as we sail closer to Curacao. It's blowing around 20 knots when Ed notices we're sailing by the lee, which can be a bad thing. The wind has shifted to where it's now blowing over the starboard, which is the lee side of the boat. That can be a problem if the wind gets behind the mainsail and causes an accidental jibe. Up to then, everything had been perfect, but things can change pretty quickly on a sailboat, and things were about to really fall apart. I decide to do a controlled jibe and we bring the mainsail and traveler to the center line of the boat so that no one gets smacked by a flying boom. I'm at the helm keeping an eye on the rocky face of Curacao that's approaching. The boat won't come around under sail alone so I fire up both engines and start turning to port, not realizing I'm about to make a critical mistake. I don't give clear instructions to my crew on exactly how to manage the lines on the jib. One of the jib sheets gets free and suddenly all hell breaks loose. 
The sail is flailing like mad and, and lines are whipping all over the place, twisting together into knots. We try to pull in the furling line to roll up the jib, but the line is crossed over itself on the furling drum. This is due to another mistake I made, not making sure my crew remembered to keep some tension on the furling line when we pulled out the jib a few hours ago. I'm afraid someone's going to get really hurt by the lines whipping all over the place. They can take your head off or, or seriously damage the boat. The only thing I can do is bring the boat around and point it directly into the wind. Ed then is able to crawl on his belly under the whipping lines to the furling drum and get it all untangled. Finally, we get things under control, furl up the jib and lower the mainsail, and we motor our way into Tyro Bay. We're south of the hurricane belt, which makes Tyro Bay a popular harbor for sailors to store their boats during hurricane season. We could see what appeared to be hundreds of masts from miles away. Sure enough, the harbor is packed and we have to weave our way through the boats looking for a spot to anchor. Our first attempt fails, which is when we have our first boat boy experience. One approaches in his skiff and says he'll lead us to a nicer spot to anchor. Sure enough, he does and soon we're snug. He comes by our boat then asking for compensation for his help. I give him $10, then he asks if we'd like to visit his mom's restaurant. Well, I tell him we've got fresh fish for dinner, and soon he's asking me for a slice. Then he asks us for a drink, and we pass him a Carib, one of the local beers. And then he asks for rum, or, or maybe he's offering us rum at his mama's restaurant. We couldn't really tell. Anyway, we had our own rum on board and fresh mahi to grill for dinner, so we never found out. The next morning after Ben's pancakes, I have to go ashore and visit the immigration office to formally check out of Grenada. First, I use an online SailClear app to check us out. That is supposed to speed up the process, but when I get to the immigration shack, I find out their system is down and I have to fill out all the paperwork by hand in triplicate. I don't know what they do with all these forms. There are boxes and boxes of them piled up in the office, filled with forms completed in, in triplicate, no doubt. The immigration officer fills out more forms. He collects 60 ECs, that's 60 Eastern Caribbean dollars from us, or about $25 US, then sends us on our way. Days earlier at the IGA grocery store in Grenada, another sailor told us we just had to stop at Sandy Key. It's a short hop from Tyro Bay, just around the point. The wind is blowing pretty hard out of the southeast, and the few mooring balls that are in front of the little island are taken. So we drop anchor and get the boat settled the best we can between rocks and the hard sand. We take a dinghy ashore and find a beautiful little crescent beach. The island's shaped kind of like a croissant with a small crystal clear tidal pool in the middle of it. Then we grab our snorkeling gear, we snorkel around the backside of the island and find it loaded with coral of all types, tons of sea urchins, and tropical fish galore. It was really pretty. Back on Elway, our destination now is Union Island. We first have to go northwest to Clifton Harbor to check in, and we have a really wonderful sail with 15 to 20 knot winds out of the southeast. That puts us on a beam reach, which is a fantastic point of sail. We're averaging probably seven to eight knots by then. Soon we're outside Clifton Harbor. We take down the sails and motor our way in. Now we've been warned of aggressive boat boys here and sure enough, one quickly approaches as we're coming in. We learn later that you should always have small denominations of ECs to pay them in. While not having any, we decline help and we find a spot to anchor temporarily while we clear customs. You never know what you'll find or who you'll meet going ashore in the Caribbean, which is all part of the adventure. Baron joined me for this one while Ed and Ben stayed on the boat to keep a watchful eye on the anchor. And the next onslaught of help came as we approached the docks. Men were calling us from all around, wanting to be the ones to tie us up and offer their assistance. I steer the dinghy towards the oldest and quietest man who directs us to our dinghy dock. And we're still in need of mangoes. And our new friend Herman says he can help. 
The first stop, though, is the customs booth, and we go in while Herman waits outside. This time, they do use my sail clear entry, and we get through much faster, though 260 EC poorer as we exit. Next door, we visit the immigration officer who stamps our passports, and then we're good to go. Herman is waiting for us, eager to show us the mangoes, but first we have to do a little shopping in a tiny hot store. Then we find Herman sitting outside his small shack where he sells tourist trinkets. Next door to him is a fruit stand where we find the mangoes and also load up on onions, cucumbers, some huge avocados, and a watermelon. Escorting us back to the dinghy, Herman shares that the next day is his birthday, which so happens is also Ben's birthday. Herman says he's turning 63, though I have to say I would have guessed quite a bit older. We give him an extra big tip and wish him happy birthday. It's then a short motor sail around the south side of Union Island to our destination, Chatham Bay. We have our fishing lines out, hoping to catch another Dorado for mango ceviche, but no luck. It's 6 p.m. by the time we pull into this beautiful harbor. There are a dozen or so other boats, but tons of room to find a great anchorage. Catamarans have taken over the Caribbean charter scene, so I'm a bit surprised to be outnumbered by monohulls. Actually kind of nice to see. After diving in to check the anchor, which is snug as could be in the sand, we have a round of painkillers to celebrate. By then it's already dark out with just a few lights ashore. We set out on the dinghy in search of dinner, hoping one of the restaurants we saw on the map is open. We aim towards the Sunset Cove Bar and Restaurant at the far end of the beach, the only one with the lights on by now. It looks pretty deserted as we run the dinghy onto the beach. There we meet our soon-to-be drinking buddy, Kerwin, who steps out of the darkness, and he says he can't serve us any food, but he can help us find some rum punch. Curious as to where this might lead, we follow Kerwin into the dark, walking barefoot down a trail covered with pricklies to another beach bar called the Shark Attack. And there we find the owner, Mr. Shark Attack, who fixes up some sort of rum punch for all of us. It tastes more like moonshine served up in mason jars. Well, we drink and chat with our new Union Island friends, learning more about island life. Tourist season doesn't begin until December, so it's pretty hard going for them without much business. Shark Attack shows us the wood carvings he does in the off-season, first showing us these really cool sea turtles and pelicans that he carved. And when those didn't get us to buy anything, he brings out this risque island girl statue. Fun, but probably not what we'd imagine bringing home to our wives. The funniest thing we hear, though, is when I tell Shark Attack about meeting Herman and it being his birthday. Oh, Herman the German, says Shark Attack. And he tells all the tourists it's his birthday. He gets better tips that way. Well, I have to admit it worked. He also tells me that his daughter works in the customs office, and I'd actually seen her earlier that day. What a small island. The next morning, we wake up on a mission. We just have to catch a fish for Ben's birthday. Before heading out, though, we decide to go for a swim and are rewarded with some of the best snorkeling we've ever encountered. It's like swimming in a giant aquarium. We're surrounded by thousands of fish of all varieties, including some really strange-looking ones, like a scorpionfish hiding under a coral ledge. As we're heading back to Elway, Baron spots this two-foot longfish on the seafloor with fins in the front and wings in the back. It looks like a sea dragon, really bizarre. Our destination that day is Charleston Harbor on Kennewan, but we're going to head out to sea first, and we all agree we're not going to turn around until we catch something. We have this awesome sail, the engines are off, we're going six or seven knots with a double reef mainsail and 15 knots southeast winds. What could have been a two and a half hour sail straight to our destination turns into a six and a half hour sail in search of fish. But we aren't even getting a bite, so we decide instead of sailing all the way to Mexico, we better turn around and head to Kenawan. Coming into Charleston Harbor, another boat boy motors out to greet us, 
He asks if we need anything, and when we say no, he very politely says his name is John and to reach him on channel 16 if we change our minds. We anchor in the pretty bay, ringed by homes with colorful roofs, and we're just out from the Soho Beach Hotel. It looks really nice and well-kept, and, well, we're about to find out just how nice it is. After quick showers, we dinghy ashore in search of a fish dinner for Ben's birthday. We pull up at the town dock and find the locals unloading pallets and pallets of food and drinks off this cargo ship. Walking up the street, we find the tiny grocery stores restocking their shelves. The local men are sitting all around chatting and yelling, Hello, Captain! as we walk by. We can't find any restaurants open during off-season, so we work our way over to the Soho Hotel that we'd seen from the boat. There's a security guard at the gatehouse who points us towards the restaurant down this cobbled drive. The landscaping, it's perfectly manicured. At the front desk, we find a very nicely dressed young woman who explains the rules. This is a private, members-only resort. We can visit the bar and restaurant, but we cannot take photos of any of the guests and absolutely no flashes. With that completed, she leads us to this beautiful bar overlooking the harbor. We take a seat at a long table on the beach and take the menus. It looks like the perfect spot for Ben's birthday until we look at the menu. Ed asks with hope, are these prices in EC or US? The server says US dollars and walks away, letting us decide what we want to order. We are in shock, looking at $25 drinks, $28 hamburger, $50 entrees, plus an additional 16% VAT and gratuities. Well, this place is clearly for folks who don't even look at prices. None of us wants to be the cheapskate, but we're all thinking the same thing. Fortunately, Baron spies another option on his phone. There's a fish restaurant on the other side of the island, and it says it's open. We sneak off onto the beach and make our way up and over the island to find the conch shell. It's right on the beach and much more of the vibe we're looking for. Kayla greets us as we walk in and serves up some of the best painkillers we've ever had. We find barracuda on the menu, and we just have to order it. I mean, when do you get a chance to eat barracuda? Well, not at the conch shell restaurant. Turns out they were out of barracuda, but we did get some tasty swordfish for Ben's birthday dinner instead. Walking back from the restaurant to the boat, we're in search of ice. And guess where we're directed? This woman we're speaking with laughs when we tell her we know Channel 16 John. She calls him up, gets him out of bed, and he meets us in front of his little shop with a bag of ice. These island folks are so incredibly nice to us. One place I can't wait to visit on this trip is Tobago Keys. I've read about them for years in countless sailing magazines, and they sound amazing. There's a massive horseshoe-shaped reef with gorgeous turquoise water and beautiful snorkeling. The whole area is a marine park, complete with a park ranger who visits every day to collect the mooring and park fees. I pictured it looking more like the Bahamas with virtually no elevation, but as we approach it the next day, we find two little islands sticking up like pyramids about 100 feet high. We motor in and go between these islands Petit Rameau and Petit Bateau to check out the anchorage that sits between these islands and the coral reef. But the wind is blowing so hard, the waves are super choppy, doesn't look like an ideal place for spending the night. So we go back, we trace our steps back to a mooring that's in the protected lee of the islands. Then Taffa, the lobster man, is waiting for us in his skiff, ready to help. It's probably easier to pick up the morning ball ourselves, but we let Taffa help us. Turns out he doesn't want a tip, but invites us to have a lobster dinner on shore that evening. We can even see the giant live lobsters in the well of his boat. The price he quotes, though, is, is more than we want to spend, but we say, well, let us think about it, and he gives us his business card. This is our first stormy day, not perfect conditions for visiting the amazing Tobago Keys. Undeterred, though, we grab our snorkel gear and head out in the dinghy. 
It's far too rough to anchor near the reef, so we park the dinghy on this tiny island called Baradell. There we get sandblasted by the wind as we get into the rough water. It's too choppy to swim over to the reef, but we're rewarded with a fun spotting of these two large sea turtles who are munching away on the seagrass. They must be super used to seeing humans. They paid no mind to us as we all hung out and swam with them. Back on Elway, Baron couldn't stop thinking about the lobster, so we come up with a plan. Let's see if Taffa will sell us the lobsters to cook ourselves. We text him on WhatsApp, and soon he pulls up next to our boat, and the negotiations begin. It takes a lot of haggling, but soon we're the proud owners of two monster lobsters. Baron has grilled lobsters back in South Africa and knows just what to do. He rips off the heads and splits the tails in two so we can fry them on the grill. We cook the heads in a big pot of water, not to waste any of the meat. It is so good. We're a mess after our delicious feast covered with bits of shell and lobster meat. We throw the empty shells overboard for the fish and it's really funny, a few hours later we dive in and it looks like every fish in the neighborhood came over for the lobster party, but they pick that lobster shell clean. The next morning, unfortunately, it's time to work our way back south to Grenada. So our first stop is Clifton on Union Island where we have to go back to customs and check out of St. Vincent and the Grenadines. And guess who's waiting for us? Herman the German. Well, Ben has fun chatting with him about his birthday, not letting on what Shark Attack told us about it not being his birthday. Ben's still convinced it was. We fly through customs and immigration in 20 minutes. From Clifton, it's less than an hour sail back to Tyro Bay on Carousel. There we find a great spot to anchor outside all the congestion this time, and it's just a short dinghy ride to the customs office. Here we find a longer line, though, and enjoy a cold drink at the bar next door while we wait. With our passport stamped, we head out for a short hop to this small island called Frigate Island that I spied on Savvy Navi. We're the only ones there and feel a little bit exposed, but the holding seems good enough for the night. I spotted my first moray eel between rocks while we're snorkeling, but he snakes into the cracks as soon as he sees me. I get up several times that night to check our anchor to make sure we aren't dragging. The next morning, we enjoy our coffee and get ready for a big sail. We've got about 50 miles to the southern end of Grenada to go, and we're taking the wilder Atlantic side for some good adventure. My eyes are pretty wide as we motor out into the open ocean, straight into 20 to 22 knot winds and five foot seas. We hoist the mainsail after clearing the rocks, then fall off the wind to our desired course and pull out the jib. This is our last day to catch fish, so Ed puts out both of his lines and I let out my hand line. I'm trying out this new red and white wood plug lure, hoping it's going to be my good luck charm. We only see one other sailboat out on this side of Grenada, a monohull making even a better time than we are. It is a picture perfect day. My Margaritaville station is playing on the speakers and we gradually let out more sail as the wind dies down during the day to about 11 knots, just as predicted by Savvy Navi. We're about to round the southeast tip of Grenada when I hear Ben yell those two favorite words, fish on. I run back from the helm and find Baron pulling in this two foot skinny silver fish on my hand line. Sure enough, we've got a barracuda. Emboldened by the Conk House restaurant, Ed chops them up into barracuda steaks that we throw into the fridge for dinner. Soon we're motoring into our last anchorage for the trip, Prickly Bay. It's pretty crowded with boats also stored for hurricane season. So we weave our way through all the boats attempting to get closer to the bars and restaurants for our last night. We decide to take a mooring instead of anchoring between all the boats. And now it's time for us sailors to go ashore and see what we can find. Our first stop is the Prickly Bay Marine Bar for our first round of painkillers. Our next destination is a hotel bar down the road. On our way out of the parking lot, Ed spots some statues behind a chain link fence. Turns out they're new statues for the Molinaire Underwater Sculpture Garden that we'd miss seeing. 
We start taking photos from outside the fence and this man invites us in. He's not the artist, but he's the brains behind the operation. We learn all about the statues, how they're made from casts of live people, and how the park came to be. They're planning to install these new statues in just a few weeks. Too bad we won't be around to see them. Resuming our mission, we walk up the road, passing through the nicest neighborhood we've seen all week. The beautiful homes behind tall walls must have amazing views of the harbor. My crew is about to mutiny, though, after about 15 minutes of walking, but finally we spot a sign for our destination, the St. George's University Club. We find a wonderful terrace restaurant and bar overlooking a pool below and the harbor just beyond. We're treated to a stunning sunset as we enjoy our next round of painkillers, and we learn that this is a private club for the faculty, staff, and guests of the St. George's University community. We can see the red roofs of the university campus across the bay. This is the school made famous in 1983 when the American students were rescued by President Reagan in a military exercise called Operation Fury. It was triggered by a Marxist revolution on the island, which was actually a Marxist overthrowing another Marxist. Hard to believe that was 40 years ago. I can remember hearing about it back when I was in college. After the sun sets, we're off to find bar number three. We trace our steps back down the road, and this time we're in the dark and find our way past bar number one when we spot signs for a restaurant called The Beach Club. After drinks and appetizers at The Beach Club, we go to retrieve our dinghy in front of the Marine Bar. Music is pumping from this live band. Sounds pretty good, but we're just too tired to hang out. So we load up the dinghy to find Elway. Well, someone, not saying who, could have been me, forgot to turn on the anchor light before we left, so it was a bit challenging finding her in the dark. Finally, we find Elway, and soon we're cooking up rice beans and barracuda steaks. I have to say, barracuda is really tasty with light, fluffy meat. We heard in the Virgin Islands that barracuda could make you sick. They have the risk of cigatera poisoning from the reef fish that they eat, but that seems to be more of an issue further north, and it's riskier with barracuda over two feet long. We ate it, we loved it, and we felt fine the next morning, so it seems that uh, it was all good. Well, we had to slip our mooring at 7 a.m. to be at St. George's Fuel Dock by 8.30 a.m. On our way there, we sailed past the hotel on Grand Ants Beach where we'd stayed just a week earlier. All too soon, we are boarding our flight back to Miami. All in all, I have to say the Grenadines definitely lived up to my expectations. The sailing was a bit more challenging than the Virgin Islands, but navigating was pretty easy, especially with the help of an app like Savvy Navi. Now we're dreaming of our next sailing adventure. We're not sure where we're going yet, but Antigua and the Bahamas are sure on our list. There you have it. That's my Christmas catamaran sailing special for you. If you want to see some photos of my trip, you can go to channeljourneys.com cj129. You can subscribe while you're there. Be sure to check out our sponsor and partner at impartner.com and also take a look at the agenda for ImpartnerCon 24. They have got a great lineup. I want to wish all of you a very Merry Christmas. I find it so wonderful and amazing that the birth of Jesus was described 700 years before his birth. In the book of Isaiah, he prophesied, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. So my Christmas wish is that God be with you and bring you a happy and fulfilling new year. I have so many great episodes coming up. I can't wait to share them with you. Until then, have an awesome channel journey. Mm-hmm.